This is Play by Playcast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play by play guys. For play by play guys, by I'm told, a play by play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now, here's the host of Play by Playcast, Todd Bodet. <laughs> Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay. Here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Hey, if you clicked on this podcast, you've successfully found the 147th episode of Play by Playcast, a podcast about play by play broadcasters for play by play broadcasters, hosted by a play by play broadcaster. If you didn't mean to click on it, you're about to go down a rabbit hole. My name is Joel Godet, and this is a professional development podcast that dives into the tips, tricks, experience, stories, process, and preparations of some of the biggest and best play-by-play announcers in the business. On social media, at PXPCast, I'm at Joel Godet, or you can email me at J-G-O-D-E-T-T at B-S-U dot E-D-U. Keep it in the college ranks this week. We had Paul Keels on from the Ohio State Buckeyes last Friday. This week's guest comes from the SEC, and for 20 years, 21 years now, for two decades, he's been the voice of the Vanderbilt Commodores. Joe Fisher is our guest this week, uh, a guy that began his career, or, or really his his career was launched to fame, uh, as a television sports personality in Nashville and in Tennessee. And spent a good chunk of time doing that before he eventually got out of the business completely and then worked for almost three years in public relations before finding his way into the radio side of things and into the live event side of things and the play-by-play side of things, first with women's basketball and then eventually men's basketball, football, baseball, and uh, being the, the face and voice of Vanderbilt Athletics. A lot of interesting things to dive into with Joe. Uh, we'll obviously talk about his tenure at Vanderbilt and uh, the fact that he he works year-round calling three different sports. The seasons just roll over one to the next to the next. Um, it's something I know a lot of us deal with. I deal with at, at Ball State. And, and how do you keep yourself going uh, all season when you get into, they call it the dog days of summer with baseball, like the dog days of of collegiate broadcasting when you get into your third season and and you've just been chugging along for the better part of eight months now uh, we'll touch on that with Joe uh, but we'll get into the unique side of his his career a lot as well in terms of working in public relations what that exposed him to how he got there and how he wound up back uh, on the sports media side of things as we always say there's no one path in this industry and uh, Joe's path is certainly uh, very unique. We'll talk about some of the best Vanderbilt teams, moments, and uh, things he's gotten to call, and of course get his breakdown on uh, how he prepares and what makes a good broadcast to him. Joe Fisher, he's the voice of the Vanderbilt Commodores, and our guest on episode number 147 of Play by Playcast. It's interesting because it's taken me some time to adapt to this. I, I was I spent a lot of time in the television business uh, here in Nashville, and while you have a pretty much set schedule you realize in television that things can change at a moment's notice and then suddenly you're off going someplace because of whatever breaking story happens uh now you can as you said kind of lay out your schedule and understand you know for the most part i know where i'm going to be except if we make a bowl game so you have to make allowances for that uh except if uh, you make an NCAA tournament or an nit bid or whatever uh 
So you have to make allowances for that. And then baseball and understand you may be in regional play or if you're fortunate enough uh, to be as good as we have been at times to be able to go all the way to Omaha. And so our family has also learned we can't plan any vacation till July. You know, that's just that's just the way it is because there's a possibility that the baseball teams are good enough that they're going to get to Omaha and you're playing until the end of June. So, um, and then you learn to deal with the crossover time, you know, with football and basketball in November primarily. Um, that can get a little bit dicey at times to where maybe you can or cannot make a game because you have to be in two places at once. Um, or, and also in basketball and baseball, when they cross over in March, um, you know, can be a bit of an issue too. But uh, it's it's plenty busy, uh, but it's never all the same. And it's a lot of fun. How did you keep yourself going through all of it? Because I'm in a similar boat where I do football, basketball, and then roll over into baseball season as well. And it's funny when I walk around the office, like various coaches will come up to me and say. Uh, you know, hey, hey, where are you at this weekend, or, or what are you doing now? And um, it's one of those things where it, like, it it just goes on you. Um, how do you make sure that in, and obviously if you get to the College World Series, you're going to have uh, a certain degree of energy, but how do you make sure that in May you have the same attitude, approach, and energy to it that you would have uh, in fall football camp in August? It helps when your team is good. I mean, that's one of those. If you, if, uh, and I've thought about this before. If I was a baseball announcer, uh, and for example, I think of the guys that do Major League Baseball, and you've got a team that's dead in the water in July. Um, I cannot imagine doing August, September, and October knowing you're going nowhere. That would, that would be quite a challenge. So I'm blessed in that regard. Uh, I have done, I think, over the years, I think with experience, I've done a better job of giving myself – time um on a wednesday uh you know when you when you don't have a game on that week on a wednesday and instead of just getting up and going to the office at seven o'clock and being in the office all day well, you know what you know maybe i need to give myself a little time i mean it's if you're going to work all weekend and if you're going to travel and if you're doing all those games i think you just have to take better care of yourself and take more time to make time to either be with your family or just to be away from you know work for a few hours and so I think I've gotten better at that over the years. Uh, now, I will admit, and everybody would understand, this basketball season was a challenge. You know, Vanderbilt uh, had not had a basketball season like this in a long, long time. Yeah. Go over the conference. Uh, that becomes quite a grind. You know, when you get down 15, 16 games into a losing streak, um, uh, that gets difficult. Um, so baseball, in some ways, was a bit of a rejuvenation to, to get back into something where you kind of think you have have something going on but i think just a big part for me has been learning to manage my time not only while i'm working but when i'm not that that's been better what else do you do in terms of what is the director of broadcasting role entail at vanderbilt and how much daily pressure is the wrong word but daily responsibility is there on your plate um nine to five it's you know i have an office in in our athletic complex here i am on staff i i'm an official member of the staff when i was hired 21 years ago todd turner was the athletic director and at that until that time the broadcast position for vanderbilt that was was an independent contractor position you know they hired somebody to do you know per game basis uh broadcasts and um, todd brought me in and said this is what i want to do i want to create a position uh, that is an in-house that is on our staff that will do games that will do many other things as well. And, and that's what it actually was kind of ahead of a trend. And now you're seeing that all over the place. You're seeing 
around the country. That's a pretty common occurrence now where uh, schools are hiring their broadcasters uh, as full-time staff members. But, I mean, uh, the combination of only the games, you also have always the radio shows uh, with coaches. You have daily reports you do uh, for updates on your network. You have speaking engagements. Uh, you MC events. Um, do a lot of things here on campus that are affiliated with other things, not just in athletics. Um, so you kind of have a presence, um, you know, in, in those kind of things as well. Um, there's, there's plenty to do. I mean, they do uh, alumni events. Uh, one of the things they do here at Vanderbilt every year is they have a summer send-off, they call it, and where cities around the country, when they have multiple students that are coming to Vanderbilt uh, you know, for their freshman year, they'll do a summer send-off party in that city. And, uh, and so I've, gone, I've attended those in Cincinnati and Tampa. And, you know, it kind of all goes around where you're welcoming these, these students to campus. So it, it reaches farther than just the radio broadcast, which I think is what I think is what Todd had in mind. I think it was the vision when they created this position to have it be more than just the radio voice. They wanted it to be something else, and it's been a lot of fun to see it evolve. What's your I, what's the most fun part of it? Like in terms of other things that are required of you and asked of you on a daily basis. You know that that gets into one of those questions when you when you're asked because I get asked all the time which sport, which sport do you like? Do you the like? Most? Yeah, yeah, you get it all the time. It's like I, I please don't make me answer that. Don't make me pick one because they're all totally different. Um, you know, the, the aspect of it that to me is the most fun, I, I guess, is a combination of. The people that I get to work with, the people I get to see, uh, I'm very fortunate to be able to spend enough time around our student athletes to get to know them instead of just cover them. Yeah. And 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 some of the stories you learn and some of the backgrounds you you see and some of the behind the scenes things that you see student athletes go through that the rest of the world doesn't know about um, is it, pretty amazing. Um, to see, to have been in situations and been in either playoff games or tournament games or whatever, and then be back at the hotel that evening or be in the hotel, be in the airport that night and see these same student athletes who just gave everything they had on the court, pull out a laptop and start working on a paper that's due, you know, the next day or two days from now. It's it's unbelievable to see what they what they go through and how well they do it. Um, and I guess so for me, the most fun part is just the day to day being here uh, and mm. and having and having been here long enough to kind of be recognized and accepted as well. You know, he's been here a long time. He's been here longer than darn near everybody else here. You know, so so uh, as you know, in the coaching business, how that all changes. So I, I think that to me has been very special. I had read where you said um, it was a really tough decision for you. One of the toughest decisions you had to make when you went to Vanderbilt in the first part because um, you were you were not in the business at the time you had, you were, were working at a PR firm um, then you, you were really happy there um, what was that process like for you like what what was it like working um, and kind of like indus- industry adjacent um, and and mm-hmm. deciding that that it was it was time for you to get back in well I walked away from television um, things for a, a variety of reasons and I, and I left and, and had nowhere to go and um, I don't recommend that for anybody, by the way. Uh, never leave a job until you got someplace else to go. But I did that one time. And and a PR firm here in Nashville, Divan Mall and Lawrence, uh, which is now Divan Mall and Lawrence and Sigenthaler, took a chance on me and, and brought me in because I had media background, obviously, and 
and um, they, they thought they could fit me into some things. And over the course of a couple of years, uh, it was one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had. I, I had the opportunity to do everything from uh, help manage a red carpet for a Planet Hollywood opening in Nashville and walk Cindy Crawford down that red carpet <laughs> to uh, serve on um, a presidential subcommittee uh, discussing the deregulation of the electric industry. Uh, I, I mean, that's that's how wide and diverse the opportunities that I got uh, to take part in uh, were. And when Todd Turner came to meet with Vanderbilt, and what the, actually the backstory to it is, you know, Vanderbilt called when I was working at DVL and said, we need somebody to do women's basketball. And um, we just need somebody in the middle of the season. They, they, they had an issue where they needed somebody to step in and do the rest of the season in women's basketball. And our president at DVL was a was a huge Tennessee Lady Vols fan. In fact, he's on the he was on the athletics board at the University of Tennessee. So he was a big not only sports fan but a women's basketball fan. So when it came up, he I went to him and said, "What do you think?" And he said, "Hey, if you can do it, if you can manage your clients and everything, I am all for it. It'll be great." And so I did women's basketball here for a couple of years while I worked at DVL before the job availability came open the, the one I have now. Um, but the challenge was uh, it, that that was one of the best places I've ever worked with some of the most outstanding, talented people I've ever been around. Um, and the variety of things I got to do and the things that were probably on the horizon for me to do was very difficult to walk away from. Um, but at the end of the day, my wife and I sat down and we did the whole, I mean, we did every exercise you can do, you know, make the list, of, you know, draw the line down the middle, pros and cons. We did the whole thing. Uh, but at the end of the day, I told her, I said, this opportunity will never come again. And if I don't do this, I will always wonder what if. And I said, so that, that being said, I have to do this. I have to take this. And it's turned out to be a wonderful thing. I've been blessed to be here 21 years and, and, and you know, we helped raise a child here and put him through college and all those kind of things. So it, it's, it's one of those things. And I, I'm pretty good at, for the most part, once you make a decision, not turning back, just kind of going ahead and saying, this is, this is the way it needs to be. Um, so I'm really, it's, it's worked out beautifully. I'm really glad I did it. So two things that you said there, I want to go back to in particular, um, the the less important one first uh what was it like to walk cindy crawford down a red carpet <laughs> that was uh, th that whole that whole thing was fascinating i mean when you got when you got sylvester stallone and bruce willis and <laughs> samuel o jackson and whoever else all coming to town for this thing and, and all the layers of how this thing works and in fact prior to walking down the carpet uh, they had a, a little reception at one of the hotels here downtown beforehand. And I was one of the three or four people that was designated to walk out. I mean, they do this. I mean, Planet Hollywood had it down to this is how you do an opening. This is how they all work. We do them every, every place we go. And so I had to walk in and I would have the crew from um, entertainment tonight with me. And I would walk in and, and bring them with me. And I would walk up and say, Mr. Sloan, this is so-and-so and so-and-so with entertainment tonight. They would like a moment of your time. <laughs> I, and, I mean, and so it's kind of, it, it's very mechanical to a degree, but then when you get away from it, it's like, man, that was really cool. <laughs> you, know, you, see, you see all these people and all the things they have. And, um, but it was funny, you know, being on the red carpet and there was a picture for a long time that, that hung in DVL of, uh, of me and, and Cindy Crawford on the, 
on the carpet where I've got my hand around her arm, walking her down the you know carpet, <laughs> leading her, leading her to the photographers and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, it was that that was that was one of the higher profile, more glamorous kind of things I got to do. The the other thing you said that I wanted to touch on was the the never leave a job until you have somewhere else to go. Um, take me through that thought process and and what you learned from being in a situation like that. Well, I, I think everybody when I left television, um, and I don't want to get into all the all the circumstances that, that led up to it, but there, there just came a time um, where I just said I I can't do this anymore for these people in this situation. That I'm not comfortable here, um, and whether it's promises made, promises not kept, whatever, I, I said I can't do this anymore, and so I and so I walked away. Um, a big part of it is, uh, quite frankly, having faith um, in, in, in God that's going to lead me in the right direction and is going to provide. Um, that's a hard thing to do when you've got, you know, now, now my wife is tremendously talented and gainfully employed at the time, so I didn't walk away. We had no money coming in, but half of our finances went away. Um, and, and so, but that, that was the leap of faith I had to take and say, this is not where I'm supposed to be. And there's got to be something else out there. And that started the chain of events over the course of now 25 years, basically, that's led me to where I am. So uh, but at the end of the day, I I think what my message to my son, for example, we talk about this all the time. You're better off when you can control your own destiny as much as you can. And that is, you know, if you aren't comfortable where you are, if you don't like what you're doing, if you want to do something else, fine. But don't I just don't highly recommend blindly walking away with absolutely nothing there and counting on something to show up. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. You know, there are there are a lot of people, as I know you know, that have tried to get in this business or have been in this business and for whatever reason can't get in the door. And um it, it's you know, it, it's one of those things where there, if I walked away from this job today there would be 10,000 applications for this job by tomorrow there, there's no question about that by, by today I, probably by, by later today right? <laughs> and, and, I, and I understand that so so but but to me that, that was one of those things that I think hopefully for me now that I'm almost 60 years old was that was a once in a lifetime deal but I believe it when I look back on all it I think I did the right thing were you at peace that like if if the media side doesn't work out then it wasn't meant to be from this point or was it one of those like I will find another place to to be behind a microphone or in front of a camera? No, no. Actually, when I took the job at at, at Dive In Mall in Lawrence, the PR firm, I, I figured the media thing was over. Uh, I I did not think I would be on camera again or um, on radio again, and I was fine with that. I mean, uh, it was. And I think a big part of me being fine with that was because of the challenge that that job gave me, the opportunities it gave me, the experience, experiences that it gave me. And it did feed on, in some ways, my knowledge of the business and little things like, you know, if you're a major corporate entity and you're about to hold a major press conference to announce that you're going to do, which we did, um, a concert tour that's going to uh, end – uh, with two massive concerts at the Texas Motor Speedway, one country, one rock, um, I have a pretty good working knowledge of how a press conference should work. You know, and little things about what kind of what kind of technical stuff do you need? How do you need to set up the press? Uh, you know, 
set up all those kind of things. And that was the kind of expertise that they dragged me in for to start with. And then it evolved into other things about handling media and doing media training. And so I would media train uh, corporate CEOs and, you know, crisis communications and those kind of things. It was a, it was a, it was a one, it was a very short experience in terms of just the time. It was two and a half to three years, but it was as um, meaningful an employment time for me as I've ever had. So that said, how exhilarating was it when the chance comes to not just be on the broadcast side of things again, but to actually be doing live event work as opposed to um, being behind a desk and being in a, in a studio and, and now getting a chance to, to be painting that live picture? Yeah, that, that, that was a very interesting transition because I had spent so much time. And, of course, I had done play-by-play in college and, and, and like I said, had done the, the women's games for, for a couple of years. Um, but, but for me, having been so long in the TV business, a lot of times you're not doing anything really during the game except just kind of keeping track of what's going on. Your workload begins afterward. I mean, that's when you hit it, you, you know, interviews and putting packages together and all that kind of stuff. And I had to adjust to the fact that it had now shifted. And for me, the workload was the game. Uh, and, you know, 30 and 45 minutes after the game, I'm, I'm done. Um, so that, that was, that was something that was, that took a little getting used to, um, the exhilaration of a live event was not lost on me. Um, having grown up in Nashville and having grown up listening to Paul Eels do, do the play by play at Vanderbilt and, you know, guys, not only Paul Eels, but Charlie McAlexander and, and, and so many others, uh, that did it. Having grown up at a time when we would sit in the bed with the transistor radio and younger people would say, what are you talking about? It's well. This is exactly what it was. And listening to Kaywood Ledford or listening to Jack Buck or listening to, you know, whoever you could get, you know, on the radio or clear channel on AM at night and listening to games. That's what I did. And so I think there's a part of me that has a certain amount of um, I, I don't know that I quite comprehend the fact that I'm sitting in a chair that Larry Munson sat in. You know, Larry Munson was a play-by-play voice at Vanderbilt before he was a play-by-play voice at Georgia. Um, and, you know, Paul Eels was the voice at Vanderbilt before he was the voice at Arkansas for all those years. And so for me to have the opportunity to be in that chair, Wes Durham's a great friend of mine, one of my best friends, who was a play-by-play man here now in Atlanta with the Falcons for so many years. Um, it's it's pretty special to be in that fraternity and uh, it's not lost on me when we get together every year the sec broadcasters all get together and and uh we meet at the sec tournament it's the only place where we're all in the same place at the same time and so we get together and have meetings and talk about what we need to do to help each other and fix you know whatever some technical some other stuff um and you look around that room and you see guys like a David Kellum that's done baseball for 40 years at Ole Miss, you know, like a Jim Ellis that, you know, was there forever, um, and, you know, with Jack Crystal and and so many guys. Jim Hawthorne just retired at LSU. Guys that spend a vast majority of their life in that position, and now I find myself in that same spot. It's uh, it, it's pretty humbling. I knew I should have texted Wes before this to, to find out the inside scoop um, <laughs> and dig down deep. Um, He'd have given it to you, too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you probably would have. I'm sure I'll hear about it now. Um, what's the uh, what, what's been – I mean, you've called a College World Series championship in, in your time mm-hmm. at Vanderbilt, but what's been the, the pinnacle moment? Has, has there been something you have most reveled in uh, having been able to be at live and be able to, to convey that story live? 
It's interesting. There, there are a few. You mentioned the national championship, and I, I think if you're if you're a Vanderbilt person and you say you had the opportunity to call a national championship moment, that that's hard to top. Um, you know, to to, th- to have been here for the building of this baseball program, and Tim Corbin came 17 years ago, and to see what the program was, what the facilities were, what the situation was then to what it is now is just just blows your mind. It, it's amazing how far they have come. So I I think I have to just by default say sitting in the press box at TD Ameritrade Park in Omaha in 2014 and calling John Norwood's home run to give Vanderbilt the lead in the eighth inning over Virginia and then Adam Ravenel with the strikeout to end the game and win the championship is probably hard to top. Now, that being said, there have been several other significant moments. Um on a, on a note where a team didn't win enough to go to a bowl game, Jay Cutler's touchdown pass to Earl Bennett mm. uh, to beat Tennessee. And, and, and in that streak, uh, you know, of 20, what, 23 years in a row, I guess, where Tennessee had beaten Vanderbilt. And to do it in Knoxville was amazing. Um, you know, that quick slant into the end zone to get Vanderbilt the lead and the win and put that streak to bed was, was really – and that's one of those moments – that Vanderbilt fans will always recall. Um, there have been a couple of basketball moments, certainly to be a part of uh, a, a couple of terrific uh, runs to get to a Sweet 16. Uh, you know, uh, down 11 with two minutes to go against North Carolina State, and, and coming back to win to advance to the Sweet 16 uh, was was pretty special. Um, so there have been a number, and I tell you one that. And if you ask a Vanderbilt baseball fan, they will immediately start to smile when they hear hear about this one. It really, to me, was the jumping off point for this current program. And it was um, back in 2000, I think 2003. They all run together now. But um, last game of the regular season, uh, have to win to make it to the SEC tournament for the first time in in seven or eight years and, and playing Tennessee and down by one bottom of the ninth, uh, runner at first, and Worth Scott comes to the plate. He's from Hendersonville, which is a, you know, a, a city just north of Nashville. He's batting basically his weight you know, for the year and facing Luke Hochaver, who's a first-round draft pick, and hits a two-run homer over the wall in right to not only beat Tennessee, but to put Vanderbilt in the SEC tournament, to knock Tennessee out of the tournament to end their season. Um that was kind of the jumping off point for this program. And that's one of those seminal moments that I think Vanderbilt baseball fans always remember. Let me ask you about another um, guy hitting his weight, hitting a home run off a first round pick though. Um, And I mean this from the standpoint of it wasn't, positive for your team. But oh, you're going to bring up Michigan, aren't uh, Yeah, you? I was going to bring up Allen Oaks. Uh, <laughs> but I, like, from the standpoint of, like, it's an incredible sports moment. And, like, 2007 yeah. Vanderbilt is, is like, if it's not the best team to not win the College World Series, it's, it's easily one of the top two or three. Right. Um, how do you convey a moment like that where what you're witnessing is truly historic, um, but at the same time is completely deflating for 95% of the people that are tuning into your voice. And as to me, yeah. uh, you know, I, you know, a, a part for me to have to learn uh, early on was I remember the first football game I did at Vanderbilt. Um, we played in Starkville, Mississippi, played Mississippi state. Jackie Sherrill was coaching at the time, got beat 42 to nothing in a game that wasn't that close. 
And I remember getting on the plane, coming back and saying, what in the world have I gotten myself into? Because I'm not sure I can handle a steady diet of this. And you have to learn as emotional as it is, as much as it means to you, it is still a job. It is still something that you have to convey um, to your fan base. Now, you can convey your disappointment, your broken heart, your elation. You, you can do all of that, but you've still got to try to live in the moment. Um, I think all of us who do what I do think about big moments beforehand. And I don't say you want to script them. And I, I know some guys that do, you know, some that have said, I remember Milo Hamilton when he, you know, he was talking about Hank Aaron heading toward breaking Babe Ruth's record. He, he worked hard about what he was going to say when he hit 715 and then he hit 715 off Al, Dan Al Downing and everything went out the window. He totally forgot it and said something <laughs> totally different. And I, to and I really understand that. Um, I think the biggest part for me that I've learned over the years, and I'm far from, you know, the best at this, but I think the biggest part for me is trying to stay out of the way of the moment. Um, don't overpower it by talking over and over and over again, saying a lot of things. Sometimes the best thing to do is just let it breathe. Sometimes you just have to allow your fans and your listeners to absorb the moment, either in elation or in despair. Um, so I think that is a big part of it. And then describing, uh, I, I remember when we won in 2014, one of the reporters here came to me afterwards and said, what did you say? When we won the game, what did you say? And I said, I have no idea. I don't remember. <laughs> and somebody's going to have to play it back for me. And I said, I do remember that when I thought about it, my whole thought process was keep this simple. Because if you try to do too much or you get too fired up, you're going to break down emotionally and you're not going to do a service to the people who are listening. And so uh, that's why for me, when, when we won in 2014, my call was dreams do come true. And that was it. Um, uh, and, and that to me just kind of said it all. And then I just let the moment play out and, and ran with it. Um, I don't, there, there's no right or wrong way to do it. I just think especially, and, and radio and TV are totally different. If you're doing television, as you know, you can just kind of step back and let the pictures take care of themselves for a minute and a half and just let it all carry. And radio, you have to do a little bit more description of what's going on. But I think you can still let that moment breathe because think about it, fans, if they're celebrating at home, they're jumping up and down off the couch and all that kind of stuff after you just won, they're not going to hear you for the first 15 seconds. Hmm. You know, so, I mean, you have to think about, okay, let them get their celebration and then we'll, then we'll go ahead and play this out. So it's, there's no, there's no perfect way to do it, but I mean, I hope I have more chances to do it. I'll say that. Is it a similar mindset too, in terms of like those second round basketball wins that you guys had to clinch a sweet 16 spot um, to, to make sure that your world isn't spinning so that the listener's world isn't spinning and that you can kind of control what you are seeing in a situation like what would it come down to a three point play in 2004 mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. And then, of course, the, the, the double overtime against Wazoo that, that got you there in, in 07. Mm -hmm. Like, it, it can, I, I can imagine there is a, a real, real easy path to go down where um, you can get carried away too much, where the world just starts to go too quickly on you. Well, and what you have to do, I, I think, and I think we do it as broadcasters, is you kind of, as you're going down that path, 
you start to sense what might be coming. You know, let, let's think about, okay, if this happens, we may end up going here. We may end up going to overtime. This may, are we going to have a last second shot? I mean, so you start thinking about all the things you need to pay attention to, you know, in, in, in a certain situation. You lean on, I do at least, um, you lean on your color analyst, hmm. you know, to you know, set up this situation. What are we What are we about to see? What do you think is going to happen? What could happen here? What would you do? Um, I, I've always been, I mean, a lot of times play-by-play guys, I think, get caught up in the trying to impress people that they know a lot about the game. And so you end up trying to do a lot of color analysis, uh, analysis as well. I, I don't, I don't think that's my role. I mean, I know the game to a degree, certainly. Um, I can do some of that to a degree. I do it in baseball because I do them by myself. I don't have a color analyst in baseball, but I think you need to lean on your partner, you know, in that situation to help set up what's going to come. Um, and then, and then again, it's being aware of the moment. Uh, it, you know, it's being aware of. And me being fortunate enough to have been through quite a number of buzzer beaters, quite a number of last second, you know, shocking wins or losses, you kind of have a little bit better handle on how to deal with that, how to be prepared for that. Um, so that's, and I, I think some of that is just clearly experience. I would, I would tell you, if you went back and listened to the first buzzer beater I dealt with 15 or 20 years ago and listened to it now, you probably would see quite a bit of difference. What's your process like going into a game? Uh, I know I, I, I've read you do, you, you said 20 hours of prep for a football game. Um, what is that 20 hours spent on? Well, 20 hours, that, that's basic. That's 20 hours of stat prep, no prep, uh, charts. Uh, that's just, that's, that's the hard number. Uh, I would say that you know, the time is probably more than that, just in terms of reading and and, and, and becoming familiar with other other things, you get into a role, uh, I think, in football, um, where you kind of know, okay, on this day, I'm, I need to do these things. I need to have all this done by this day. And and, and you know, usually you have all the the notes that are provided to you by the opposing team and by your team are usually in your hands by Tuesday morning. So you are able to start on your depth chart, put those things together, and and I I usually do a three D depth chart. A lot of guys uh, I know send them out uh, to have them printed, you know, by, by somebody else. I, I still do them by hand. I still write them down by hand um, because, for me, it helps me remember better when I do it that way. Uh, so that's a time-consuming task uh, when you start going 3D football offense and defense for both teams, but it's something that has to be done for me uh, to make that work. And then – then you have to go through your process of your, your your interviews that you're doing, not only for your daily report, but also for your pregame show. Uh, get those done uh, during the course of the week. You usually have a set time to be able to do those as well. Um, and then it just it's just something you methodically learn uh, what works best for you. Everybody's going to have a different approach, I think, uh, what works best for them. And, and for me, it, it pays off more to take more time to put my own charts together because I remember more, I learn more, I make little notes, you know, in the margins that, that mean something to me uh, that I want to be sure and get in in the broadcast. Um, and, and it becomes for anybody else, it becomes a routine. This is how you do it. And, uh, and, and so that's, that's how we learn to put this thing together. What do you read? Um, and particularly for baseball where there's more time to, 
go down different rabbit holes as opposed to mm-hmm. just having your backing for a you know football game where it's you know trying to get in what you can. Uh, what's yeah. important to you to know outside of what a guy's tweaked at the plate this week? Well, one of the interesting things with baseball, and I think it's one of the advantages of uh, of, college, of college baseball coverage now, is there are several quality publications that cover the sport very well. Um, so you can you can go from D1 baseball to collegiate baseball to Baseball America to Perfect Game, and you, you can go all the way around, and you get a variety of uh, of people who really cover the game extremely well and get some great perspectives and things that they see that you haven't seen or areas they've been you haven't been so that that to me is a big plus it's also i think very important if you're getting ready to play um a southeastern conference opponent say um to to go back and be able to read their publications their local papers i mean if you're playing if you're playing georgia you want to read the athens daily herald i mean you want to go and see what they're talking about day to day uh, what storylines they may be looking at locally that you would not get otherwise. So I think you put in some time doing those kind of things, you know, as well. There are certain guys, obviously, that that, that I follow, you know, on a regular basis um, and, and pay attention to what they say. A guy like a Kyle Peterson, uh, you know, in baseball, and Aaron Fitt, a Kendall Rogers, um, you know, there, there are a number of guys that really do a great job covering it, and, and so – you immerse yourself in those things. You sort of make it, that, that's not something you do day of game. I mean, you kind of do that all week long. You do that all the time, all season long, uh, keeping up with those guys where it just becomes second nature that that's what you read. Uh, is there, what's the best way to get into all of that in your eyes? Um, you know, a lot of times people say don't force things from a story's perspective. Uh, what's the best way to, to uh, politely, uh, massage in something as opposed to just hitting somebody over the head with it uh, as, well, as you continue. I make, I make, I make before a broadcast, you know, because you get these notes and you get a ton of notes, and I, I will call them down usually to a one page list for each team of notes that I think I pretty much absolutely want to get into a game. Sure. Um, because you can, you can get so lost in the minutiae, you can get so lost in all that. Uh, that, that you waste time. I, and I, so I think you're better off just kind of saying, okay, I'm pretty sure that these 10 things right here, I'm going to want to get into this broadcast somewhere. And then you wait for the situation that sort of dovetails into what that particular note is all about. Games that are close, I've told people this before, games that are close do themselves. I, I, when you're in a close hard-fought game that is, you know, pitch-to-pitch, you know, basket-to-basket, you know, whatever it is, those games as a play-by-play guy kind of do themselves uh, because you're just describing what's going on at the moment. You're setting up your color guy to help you, you know, analyze what's going on, and you're just staying in that moment. The ones where you need all the preparation and all the notes are the games that get out of hand. You know, where, where you're leading by seven in the third inning or, you know, it's a basketball game that's a blowout or a football team that's up by four touchdowns. That's when you start to get into more of the personality stuff and more of the, the sidebar things that you have to have filed away. And I would think any any play-by-play guy, any guy, I'm sure if you ask any network guy, what percentage of the stuff you prepare do you use uh, in a game? 
And the answer would probably be small. It would probably be 20 to 30%. You know, there's a lot of stuff you just, you've got there, but you just don't get to because you don't need it. It doesn't fit. It doesn't fit the circumstance, but you have it there in your mind and on your notes in in case that situation comes along. Uh, But again, the games that, you know, you're a three, two game of the night. You're not worried about notes about where so-and-so went to high school and, (laughs) <laughs> you know what what kind of what his favorite meal is and you know what you know video game he plays that doesn't matter you're talking about the task at hand and so you know that's you prepare for the games that get away early last thing i have for you on a prep standpoint um because i know i want to wrap things up with you here and, and let you get uh, on with your day um but uh are, are you a batting cage guy or when you go to practice what are you looking to glean when you're around guys uh when they're not playing uh, what are you I'm, looking to find out, and how do you do it? I am probably not a guy that stands behind the batting cage and watches guys swing all the time. I'll do it occasionally. Um, but then there's a big part of me that's like, okay, what am I going to learn by standing here watching this guy take batting practice? I don't, I don't know that there's anything I'm going to learn standing here watching this. I'm probably more likely to be wandering around in the dugout uh, or wandering around in foul ground just listening. Um, quite frankly, you learn more from these guys on the bus, uh, at the pregame meal, um, when you're just around the hotel, seeing them in their day-to-day interactions. Um, I think you glean more from that kind of perspective than you do just kind of dialed into, you know, watching, you know, his, you know, trying to take the ball the opposite way on, on the pitch to the right corner and all that kind of stuff. It just, I, I just don't – I don't know that that does anything for me as much as learning about the other situations and being around the guys maybe off the field more than on the field. I think that's where you learn more. Uh, how about football practice or basketball practice in terms of what you're looking for in, in, in those seasons? Varies. Uh, you know, sometimes I go to football practice looking for specific things. Um, and I'll know the, I'll know the practice plan. Uh, so I'll know days where, you know, they're going to work on this. They're going to be emphasis on this. So I know I want to go out and look at, you know, this particular set of receivers or this particular secondary setup or what they're going to do in the kicking game. Um, I'm usually looking for specifics day to day. And then the other thing you're looking for practice, I am at least, and I've been around coaches long enough to kind of get a good feel for it. If, if, if they're not practicing well, uh, if the tempo is not good, um, you know, if they're having a crisp practice and everything is great, you can feel it. If they're not, you can feel it. Um, and, and so you kind of get a sense in the middle of a week. I'm not really sure I like where these guys are right now, or these guys are so dialed in. I wish the game was, you know, in two hours. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so you, so you get a little bit of that. Basketball is similar too. They'll do the same thing with the practice plan, and you know, you're going to get. You're going to get some five-on-five five time. Uh, you're going to get some pretty heavy uh, work on the post. Um, you know, they're going to focus on those kind of things. Um, so, I mean, usually when I go to those practices, I'm, I'm a little more keyed into looking for specific things as opposed to just being there in general. Joe, if people want to uh, track you down on social media or uh, find out more about you or hear the doors, uh, how do they do it? Well, uh, you can uh, tune me in on Twitter at Joe Fisher VU. At Joe Fisher VU is my Twitter handle. Of course, you can go through VUCommodores.com and get any of our broadcasts uh, through there. We're on the TuneIn app through the Vanderbilt app as well. Uh, so there's a lot of options, and 
love to have everybody join us. All right, that's Joe Fisher joining us here on Play by Playcast of the Vanderbilt Commodores. You can find him on Twitter at Joe Fisher VU. I thought it was really interesting. You know, we, we talk about the, the paths you can take in this industry and whether you should go somewhere and do play by play in a small market or if you should just move to a big market and try to put things together. Um, Joe didn't wrestle with that decision, but I think the quote of, you know, not the quote, I'm paraphrasing at this point, but the, the idea of not leaving something without anywhere else to go uh, is an interesting thing to ponder because uh, I think there's merits on both sides of it. Uh, obviously, from a like personal standpoint, financial standpoint, uh, you know, maybe keeping yourself in the business standpoint, yeah, it's good to have a place to go uh, if you're gonna if you're gonna jump. Um, there's also something to be said for not having a safety net and needing to grab hold of something lest you keep falling. Uh, but of course, there's always the the possibility you could just keep falling. So it's an interesting balance, and it was cool to hear his perspective and how it all worked out uh, for him early on in his career as well. And if you're any uh, Vanderbilt baseball fans out there, I'm sorry to bring up Allen Oaks. <laughs> 2007 Super Regionals. One of the greatest upsets in college baseball. David Price gives up a home run to Allen Oaks, who went on to be a very good player and into the minor leagues, but at that point in time uh, was a complete nobody. Still think to this day, one of the best teams to not win the College World Series. Uh, anyway, that is Joe Fisher here on uh, episode 147 of PXP Cast. Until next week, my name is Joel Gadet. The music is Marshmallow, and we are out. And that will do it from St. Louis, where the score is inconclusive.